Hello and welcome to Laidback Lush. I'm Michael, a former wine sales associate as well as former vineyard worker. And I am Gabe. I am WSCT Level 3 certified and I work as an administrator for a wine spirits educating body. And today we are going to be talking about French wine laws. All those little pesky bottles with all those little pesky labels, but with gold inside. Most of the time. Most of the time. So thank you and welcome. And if you haven't already done so, please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at LaidBackLush. Yes, and we are very sorry for the uh, very inconsistent content, both for the podcast as a whole and on our social media for the past month or so. Yeah, We are very grateful for our followers, including the... Uh, followers who have been able to listen to us in this past episode, uh, which was one that I edited. Unfortunately, I am not very experienced, and upon reviewing it, I realized that my method of editing was to search and destroy all pauses. So uh, yeah. I am just learning now, and Gabe has been gracious enough to teach me about I am editing. training him in the ways of editing. Yeah, so it appears we, we know who is definitely doing a lot of the heavy lifting about halfway <laughs> through editing this thing i messaged him like gabe you're a hero i felt so bad in that moment because i knew the exact headspace you were in because oh i have God. been there <laughs> yeah it was it was not a good place on occasion i just kind of looked up and stared out the window in order to avoid having to think about all of the mouth noises that both of us make yeah that i hope uh you guys don't have to you literally tolerate. just smacked your lips yeah i know saying that. <laughs> i couldn't i couldn't not <laughs> i was just thinking about it too much um but thank you guys for sticking with us through that yeah i hope that in the future i'm able to do some more stuff for you guys but again we just we greatly appreciate our fans we greatly appreciate our followers and we are doing everything that we can to improve. Yep. And we're doing everything we can to get back on a consistent upload schedule. Again, past month was a little hectic for both of us, just in our personal lives. I've been out of town. If you follow us on Instagram, you saw that on top of other things that are just life things. So thank you guys so much for keeping up with us and putting up with our inconsistency. Yeah. And hopefully in the future with two editors, we'll be able to be even more consistent with our production. So yes, it'll be good. What we are looking at today, though, is when you walk into any particular wine shop, or maybe you are just traveling, and you are trying to select a bottle of French wine, there are going to be a bunch of words on those wine labels, and you're going to need to be able to navigate them. Mm -hmm. In order to be able to navigate them, you're going to need to have a fairly good understanding of the wine laws. So that is our purpose today. We want you to be able to know, just by looking at the bottle, where it was made, who made it, and the quality that you can expect from it. Yeah. And kind of as a little caveat, these are very general terms that we're going to be going over today. We aren't really diving into the regions because Burgundy works a little bit differently than Bordeaux, works differently than the southern France, you know, Languedoc region does. Bear in mind, particularly Bordeaux is an exception to a lot of French wine law because Bordeaux wines are commonly ranked by the chateau rather than the region. So that is something to keep in mind. But this should give you a very solid base, as Michael said, if you're a beginner or even if you're intermediate and you still kind of struggle with a lot of these labels to hopefully be able to get a better idea of what's in your glass. Oh, uh, I should probably also mention we're not going over grape varieties in each yeah. region either. That's a five-second Google search away. If you don't know your grape varieties for each French region, 
And in future episodes, we will be definitely diving into region-specific areas of France, I'm sure. And that's something that you should know is French wine. They are not going to say what varietals are inside of the wine in the bottle. It's typically assumed that when you have a region depicted on the bottle, that's what's actually telling you what's going to be in the bottle itself. Yeah, unfortunately, you're kind of expected to know. You're just expected to know, which is kind of a sign of the prestige and the history of the area. People within the country, they just kind of know. Yeah. A lot of bottles will have the varietals printed on the labels Mm -hmm. if they are meant to be imported to the U.S., but you're not going to see it online or if it's specially imported from especially smaller vineyards. Yeah, that's just something to keep in mind. And I think once we explain this, it will make more sense why these wines are labeled the way that they are, because it is more about indicating the quality measure from that region, because each region has kind of, if you remember from the last episode, there's a hierarchy, there's a pyramid in these regions. So it's a very similar concept. So these terms should help you to start differentiating your quality levels. So let's dive in. The overarching category, around 50%, a little over 50% of French wine is going to be under the AOC, which is the Appellation d'Origine Contrôlée. Which was originated in 1411. Yes. So this is a very complex set of laws in France. More recent bottles might have AOP, which is Appellation d'Origine Protégée. This is an EU term. Yeah, but don't be don't be intimidated by this. These are a unifying term. So yes, this is going to simplify things. And they essentially mean the same thing. The laws are practically the same. AOP just encompasses a wider set of things that are protected by region. So for example, some cheeses in Switzerland are protected by AOP law. When I was doing research from the notes, I didn't know this because when I was researching this back when I was working, Mm -hmm. it was all about the wine. You know, that was the only information provided to us. But then I'm looking it up and it's starting to talk about Swiss cheeses. I'm just like, well, this is up Gabe's alley at the very least. Yeah, it is. (laughs) Fun fact. But like Spanish wine, Italian wine can be under AOP. Mm -hmm. But AOC is probably what you'll see. It is more common, at least in my experience. Just know they're basically the same thing, and AOC is the French-specific version of these laws. So these oversee all the delineated French regions. So Rhone Valley, Bordeaux, Burgundy, Champagne, all of them are under AOC law. So what does this govern? I wish I would have included this list in the last episode, so uh, apologies because the Qualitatsvine and the Pradikatsvine system of Germany also cover pretty much all of these. It'll cover things like terroir, the grape variety, the production style, the geographical location of the vineyards, the grape varietals that are allowed to be in the wine from that region, maximum grape yields, minimum aging time, and minimum alcohol levels. As I said, these wine laws can be fairly complex. They can be rather restricting for some winemakers. But at the same time, they allow you to know what you can expect as the buyer. Yes, exactly. But because they're so specific, they benefit us as consumers because we know what we're getting, right? However, if a winemaker does kind of want to maybe experiment a little more, there is an IGP or Indication Geographique Protégé, which is a more broad geographic indicator, GI, if you remember from a couple of episodes ago. The French version of this is VDP or Vindepai. I thought it was Vindepay, but I don't I don't know. We are you not are, French. We are not French. <laughs> uh, I, I have some French friends that I should have probably 
consulted consulted yeah well just know vdp or vindipi is a regional term for the most part and it provides more freedom for winemaking and style from what i know it's you can have something that is high quality that really is going to blow your socks off Mm -hmm. but you can typically expect something like a table wine yeah remember we talked either last episode or episode before about winemakers that do decide to declassify in the old world under eu law because these laws are typically so rigid for regions you might have a winemaker that's like, well, I live in a region where I'm only allowed to grow Syrah and Grenache and Mouvedra, like in, you know, Rome. I mean, there are more grapes than that allowed in Rome, but what if I want to make a Cabernet Sauvignon Merlot blend? I can't do that and yeah. call it Cote de Rhone. So they might declassify to an IGP, or they might just have bad grapes that year, and they can only really make a table wine, and that will also get declassified to yeah. IGP to protect the name of their brand. So you're so. either going to get table wine quality or you're going to get a creative genius who is Mm -hmm. not trying to conform themselves to convention i know we say this quite often and uh, i I wish i had some producers off the top of my head but i'm sorry i don't just know your producers at that point maybe ask people at your wine shops or friends who might be really into wine if they have recommendations on that level the tasting table is your friend yes and then we move on to vin de france which this is a no GI kind of wine. It literally is just a countrywide label. It's typically pretty low quality wine, very like, you know, quaffable table wine, kind of mm-hmm. like what you can get in IGP, but typically even lower on the scale quality wise than yeah, that. Yeah, I, I have had a, um, a Vin de France and it was not a great experience. Sounds about what I expect. Yeah, I prefer a Vin de Pay above that of a Vin de France. Yeah. Simply because of the fact that there is a better expectation of quality, even as a table wine. Yeah. I mean, there is still going to be some stricter laws around a Vindapai over a Vindafrance anyway. I remember on the bottle, there was like two columns next to a Chevron. I can't name the wine itself, though, but I remember it was a Vindafrance, and I just, I didn't enjoy it at all. It was not part of our catalog. It was specially brought in. Oh, lovely. Well, there, I guess there's a reason someone's trying to get rid of it. Well, it was also their first time tasting it. So it, I think that they were excited. Yeah. Look at this great wine at this great yeah, value that I found. It, yeah. Look at this thing that I got. And it's just kind of like, cool. Well, let's, actually. Let's try it. And well, then we all tried it. it well, and they weren't trying to like, they didn't have that kind of weird buyer's remorse where you try yeah. to make a thing better. They were also like, no, <laughs> I don't like At least this. they were honest. At least they could own up to it. Hey, I, I worked with fairly honest people. I can at least say that. That's good. Yeah. Moving on from the regional labeling laws, let's get a little bit more uh, focused in on what you will see more on a bottle in terms of quality indicators. The Qualitatsvine. <laughs> <laughs> we have our crews. Uh, crew means growth. I don't know exactly why growth is the term. I'm sure because it's a vine and it grows. It has a lot to do with that. Yeah. Well, I mean, each time that you have a new grape vintage, it's essentially the growth that's being given yeah. for that year. And if you're familiar with Bordeaux, you know, first through fifth growth through the 1855 classification. We really, so Wine for Normal People actually did a fantastic episode on Bordeaux wine law and really deconstructing it and making it very easy to, well, 
it still honestly isn't that easy to understand, even with all of Elizabeth Schneider's amazing stuff information. Was, yeah, a lot of that stuff was established by Napoleon himself and yeah. has only grown more complex over yeah. the years. But uh, if you want to know more about Bordeaux, I would highly recommend that we will do a Bordeaux episode eventually, I am sure. I don't know if we can live up to Elizabeth's wonderful research, but hopefully we can. Elizabeth, if you hear this, let's collab. <laughs> um, anyway, so... The crews or the growths are typically referring to a vineyard plot. Grand Cru and Premier Cru are the crews, quote unquote. And that's going to be what you're going to know as being your two top levels. Grand Cru being the great growth, if I remember correctly, uh, as what it translates to. I do want to give a caveat. So Grand Cru typically means it is the top of a region. So Grand Cru in Burgundy, Romanée Conti, is a Grand Cru vineyard that produces some of the most expensive wine in the world. Different regions can use Premier Cru or Grand Cru. Some regions don't. Um, most of them have it somewhere in their system in France. In Saint-Emilion, in Bordeaux, they have a very interesting classification system that uses the term Grand Cru in a way that doesn't really follow the rest of France. Yeah. Um, interesting is a kind way of putting it. Confusing <laughs> is well, the you, right way. You want to know a, a very interesting fact that makes it almost worse? Oh, please tell the me. The people that made these laws for the Grand Cru Class A, which we'll get into in a second, classifications, were people from Champagne, Burgundy, and the Rhone Valley, if I remember correctly. It was seven <laughs> people from those regions. So regions where, you know, these are very, like, delineated terms and they, like, mean very specific things. They made yeah. these laws. They're the ones yeah. that actually did this. Yeah. It's just, that's, it's so funny It almost me. feels like they were trying to be like, how can we make this as confusing as possible so <laughs> that nobody buys this because yeah. they don't know what it means? Again, we can get into this more in depth in a Bordeaux episode, but in Saint-Emilion, Saint-Emilion Grand Cru is a regional appellation. Not, it is an not, area. Yeah, not, not all Saint-Emilion is Saint-Emilion Grand Cru, but a large part of it is. Then you have the Saint-Emilion Grand Cru Classés. <laughs> the Classés are chateaus that have been ranked and, and given that title by the governing body that oversees Saint-Emilion wine. Yes. Now, granted, literally anything that you get from Saint Emilion is going to be phenomenal. I've yeah, never I, had a bad Saint Emilion. I've had some Saint Emilion that were maybe more um, middling quality, I guess, but never bad. Never bad. I've never had a never bad experience. Bad. I really like right bank Bordeaux wine. I, I'm kind of in a kick of it right now when I do drink Bordeaux. So I always look to Saint Emilion and Pomerol. Obviously, is a great one. But Saint Emilion, we're focused on Saint Emilion. Great wine. But it's important to know that designation. Yes. Saint Emilion Grand Cru, that is an appellation. Mm -hmm. Saint Emilion Grand Cru Classe is a chateau within that region. <laughs> exactly. And then to make it even more confusing. Oh, well, here we go. We have Saint Emilion Premier Grand Cru Classe B, and we have Saint Emilion Premier Grand Cru Classe A. A is higher than B, A is the highest you can get in this pyramid. B is right beneath it, then the Class A's are beneath that, and then the regular Grand Cru is at the base level. So Saint-Emilion does not treat Grand Cru the way that most other regions do. As I already said, most regions, Grand Cru is going to mean the absolute best of the best that you can get, and that is held in check by very strict wine laws. Obviously, yeah. there's only so much you can do in like a bad vintage. Champagne is a great example of this. 
Dom Perignon is not made every year because the quality is not there every year. So moving on, we then have Premier Crew, which you just heard in the Saint-Emilion classification. Ironically, Premier Crew is beneath Grand Cru for most other regions. Luckily, that's like one of the few exceptions. Yes, that, uh, it's the only exception I can think the only of one off, the that time, I know. off the top of my head. Uh, so yeah. yeah, Premier Cru outside of Saint-Emilion is always going to be underneath Grand Cru in terms of quality. But you are still looking at a high-quality wine. I had a Premier Cru Chablis as I watched Pas de Labor 2. Shout out to my friend David, who listens to this podcast, for actually buying me a DVD of that movie and telling me I needed to watch it. If you like uh, Ghost in the Shell, it's the same director. Old anime movies are my shtick. And, uh, oh, we need to watch it then. Okay, Michael hasn't seen it, apparently. We yeah. need to watch it. Yeah. Uh, I'm like, I, I don't think I've seen this, actually. Yeah, no. Uh, so I had a Premier Cru Chablis, and it somehow fit perfectly well with the tone of the movie. Uh, but that was a fantastic wine. I, I have no complaints about it. So Premier Cru, you're getting a quality. Then this isn't really a crew, but I did put it under this just so you can know. Village, it's spelled village, but it's pronounced village normally, is kind of like there's uh, Burgundy, let's say, right? Or uh, Cote d'Aron, actually, it was probably a better example of this. So there's Cote d'Aron, which is just the regular base Rhone wine. Typically, you're going to get decent quality wine out of that. But then if you step up to village, if you see village on a label, that typically indicates that there's some stricter requirements in terms of like yields and ripeness and minimum alcohol that indicate a bump up from the base level quality of that region. Again, the region itself has a region name for a reason. It's going to be quality wine, but this is just a step up. And you do have to be within a village region, an actual map yeah. of that village. It's kind of like if you look at a map of Burgundy, you know, and then you go into the actual villages it's these little plots within burgundy as a whole and then what grows outside of them and the more general things are what gets put into borgonia wine so that's what village means and then as i said then there's just the standard base level region for pretty much every region france has a standard base level regional wine notable labeling terms here we go i wanted to include these as they're pretty common in my experience. Yeah, and again, we're trying to help you to navigate yeah. wine labels in general. So these are important to know. Yeah, and these, again, are part of French wine law, and a lot of them help to protect a region's prestige, yeah. if you will. So uh, speaking of prestige of a region, we have Cremant first, yes. which we actually, I believe, we covered this in our Sparkling Wines episode, if yes, I remember we did. correctly. Says Captain Bubbles. Says Captain Bubbles. Thus spoke captain bubbles thus spoke captain bubbles and so it was for it was already documented very well the cremant flowed freely from his <laughs> mouth <laughs> oh god i would never waste wine like that <laughs> no you could be like a fountain you know you know ooh. no that would let out all the carbonation dude oh that that ooh, that's a really good point yeah actually. no yeah, we can't we can't have yeah. it's you do a pool if anything, and it's a pool, a very narrow, a very pool. Na yeah, yeah. A very <laughs> narrow top, because more surface area means more waste. Exactly, exactly. Well, we, we want those to be bright <laughs> bubbles, bright <laughs> bubbles, my friend. I want that mousse. <laughs> so, so cremant simply means any sparkling wine outside of champagne in France. In France, yes, yes. So Cremant de Loire, Cremant de Bergeron. Whereas in America, they will literally call anything anything because that's what we do. Because that's what we do. We're Americans. <laughs> we don't care about other people. Um, yeah. I mean, we do. <laughs> yeah, we do. But our industries don't. And I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. 
Anyway, so moving on from Cremont. Anyway, anybody want to sponsor me moving to France? Like, <laughs> yeah, or New Zealand. New Zealand, or, more specifically. Or anywhere else. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so after that, we have Chateau or Domaine. These just mean the wine-making estate. I know I keep talking about Bordeaux, but if you are familiar with Bordeaux, you are familiar with the concept of a chateau. It is an estate that grows and makes wine. I believe in order to have Domaine or Chateau on your label, you do have to at least produce the wine on site. I don't know about vineyard holdings, because I do know some producers can have additional vineyard holdings, but I don't know if they can be classified as a Chateau or a Domaine under that technicality. I should have looked at that, but I did not think about it when I was researching, so I apologize. But as far as I know, they're at least- Part of the craziness of the last two months. Yeah, but they are at least making the wine in that facility at that place we have a cooperative it's spelled almost exactly like cooperative in the u.s but uh, it just has a little dash over the e so that's just a winemaking co-op it can refer to grape growers because there are a lot of grape growing co-ops in france Um, it it can also refer to a producer as well where producers will come together and kind of um, make what they think is the best that they can get out of what they have yeah which takes really talented winemakers, to be yeah. perfectly frank. Yeah, and uh, humility. If you didn't know that Frank was a pun, then uh, you're not my people. <laughs> <laughs> then uh, we move on to Granvin. And again, if you are familiar with Bordeaux wine, you will probably see Granvin on a lot of Bordeaux labels, or you have probably seen Granvin on a lot of Bordeaux labels. This one is actually kind of not legally defined, and I wanted to include that because it's not Grand Vin. It's kind of like Prestige Cuvée, where it's basically a winemaker saying, this is my best wine. Yeah. But keep in mind, it's the producer saying that. It's not a blind tasting panel it's not experts it's not critics it's it's literally producer. yeah it's not the government going in and being like "Ooh, this is the best that there is to offer it's mm-hmm. literally a producer being like hey this is the best i have to offer yeah which it hopefully they're putting their wall into it if they're attaching that label to it but just know it's not legally protected so it might or might not live up to your expectations it's it's a good indication from that producer if you're going to try and form an opinion on a specific producer especially if you're also looking to explore maybe their vin de pay then this is a good indication of the care and the quality that they're able to put out yeah that's that's good i actually hadn't thought of that but that's a good recommendation i like that we have which this is a term that i actually have never encountered but i did come across it reading up for this episode and i figured it'd be important to include if you do come across it millesime it's m i l l e with a accent mark s i m e that just means vintage so you're probably going to see numbers on them for a vintage but if you do see this just know that that's what it means it's not some weird numbering system this one is pretty important from the production standpoint Negociants. Michael, I'm sure you're familiar with Louis Jadot. Mm-hmm. Louis Jadot actually is a very solid brand. I like their yeah. wines. Um, they work primarily in Burgundy. They also do some stuff with Beaujolais. Um, I th- believe a couple of other regions now, but they are, I think, the biggest negociant house in France, if I remember correctly. What that means is they buy grapes from growers and then they produce the wine under their own label. 
Now, why would somebody do this in the first place? I mean, you have to appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, well, okay, so obviously French wine has a long, sordid, complex history. It's primarily been driven by merchants in the past, and part of why negociants in particular popped up is French inheritance laws, where we are now getting to the point where because you have to distribute things equally between all siblings, individual vineyard plots are now being divided up by vines they can they can literally be oh gosh i forget what the exact dimensions are but you can basically have what is the equivalent of a downtown backyard Mm -hmm. full of vines and that's it that's it and you can't i mean i guess if you want to make one case of wine maybe go for it yeah like literally literally (laughs) maybe maybe that's something that you can do more than likely you can't do it it's probably better just to sell it from a cost perspective yes and and so that is where negotiants came from they buy these grapes and they make the wine so it kind of benefits everyone in this case right it benefits the negotiant because they have a product to sell it benefits the people that have these vines that they can't sell really for wine purposes, but they mm-hmm. can sell the grapes to the yeah. people that will pay them money for it and make much more money than they ever would trying to make wine from it. Especially for plots that maybe aren't so amazing. This is kind of limiting. So you can have people who are part of these networks. Networks. Yeah. Part of these specific networks that are capable of simply selecting what they think will be best in a conceptual wine. Mm -hmm. They're not specializing in growing, they're specializing in tasting and blending, Yeah, which is a fantastic opportunity and, frankly, one of the best ways that you can be taking advantage of the wine laws that are currently in place with the inheritance laws as they are. Yep. So then we move on to Superior. Again, this pops up a lot on Bordeaux labels. I haven't encountered it much outside of Bordeaux, but all superior means is it has a higher alcohol content than the standard base level regional appellation. What that translates to is these grapes were riper when they were picked, because if you remember from whatever episode we talked about grape growing in, when grapes ripen, acid tends to drop off and sugar levels tend to rise. So mm-hmm. higher sugar levels translates with yeast added in to higher alcohol. So that is translating to riper grapes. So you're getting a richer wine, uh, obviously more intense from an alcohol perspective, and just a slight bump up in quality from the base. So next we have one that I am thoroughly non-confident in the pronunciation of. It is Valle Vigny. Which, as far as I can tell, would probably vignette since vignet. it's French. Oh, it's vignette. So Valle, I would assume Valle vignette. It just means old vines. Old vines. Yeah. So if you know how to pronounce that, please message us. <laughs> slide into those DMs with slide your your audio recordings of the correct pronunciation. You've heard us say Vaughn a couple times. V I N Vin Vaughn. I've heard it pronounced both ways. That just means wine. So. That's it. <laughs> if you see that on a label, it just means wine. And then to round everything out, oh boy, organic and biodynamics are now certified terms in France. But they what have, if I want a clean wine? I really want a clean wine. What if I want a clean wine? I just don't like the sulfites. <laughs> <laughs> Some people do have a sensitivity. We are not saying that you do not. You are very rare if you do, though. But you are so rare, and if you can have dried fruits and you don't break out in a rash, you do not have a sensitivity to sulfites. You don't have it. 
It's not a thing. But organic and biodynamic. Actually, organic and biodynamic don't necessarily mean no sulfides. Biodynamic can. It depends on the producer. But I can tell you the customers that come in and ask about it. Oh, they well, they're probably saying natural wine if they're looking for sulfite free. But they don't know the difference in most cases. Actually. yeah, actually, that makes sense. Yeah. These terms tend to be kind of interchangeable on a common parlance. But for our purposes, organic and biodynamic are certified terms now under French wine law. You have to get a certification. You have to have been growing organic for organic on your farm for a number of years. And there's other things associated with that, the pesticides that you are allowed and not allowed to use, how often you spray, stuff like that. I don't think we've really gone into biodynamics very much, but um, it, it deserves its whole episode, really. it's. Pagan philosophy married with farming basically is the best way I can describe it, but it actually does have something to it. The biodynamic calendar is used in a lot of tasting rooms for when you taste what wines, because the biodynamic calendar is really good at predicting that on some days wine tastes worse than on other days. A lot of people will speculate that it has to do with the moon and the atmospheric pressure from the gravity of the moon during its various phases. All makes sense. Yeah. No, I mean, it it sounds like mumbo-jumbo, but I do think there's scientific um, legitimacy to a lot of it. And biodynamics focus very heavily on, shoot, I'm forgetting the term, but it's basically agriculture where you promote biodiversity within your vineyard. So Mm -hmm. planting shrubs that keep certain mites or other insects or pests away or that attract even wasps Mm -hmm. in order to decrease the level of pests that you're dealing with um getting goats or sheep to help with your ground cover instead of mowing stuff like that yeah Uh, taking notes from like permaculture yes basically yeah basically it's trying to like have your vineyard be its own ecosystem instead of a a thing that you're just extracting grapes from I really like the philosophy of biodynamic agriculture. Personally, it's much more sustainable than a lot of vineyards and even organic. It, it, organic, um, I say this as someone who eats a lot of organic food in a lot of circumstances, that's kind of a meaningless term, but anything to try and be more aware of our impact on the environment and to give a better product in the long run, I'm okay with. Yeah. And those are now codified in French law. You have to be certified to put it on your bottle. And that's that. And I've had a lot of wines that do have these certifications, these labels, and they've been fantastic, actually. You can find them. They are cropping up more and more in yeah. your in your local shops. Our Wegmans has a whole organic section mm-hmm. in the wine section now. So, And some of it is really good. Some of it is not so good. So please be honest yeah. with yourself. Well, actually, I, I believe it's Argentina and Chile both are, mm-hmm. are pushing pretty hard for organic farming. And they're both great countries yeah. to buy from. So if you see that on the label, that you probably are getting a good wine. Well, and the more money that these technologies get, the more that they'll be able to advance, the exactly. better that they'll be yeah. able to become. So on a certain level, I'm like, I just want to support this so that this can move forward. Yeah. On another level, make sure that you're funding the right people. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Because <laughs> some people will use this as a gimmick. I, yeah, I'm not sure I would buy organic wine out of California just because of uh, <laughs> their yeah. history was skirting around regulations with certain yeah. things. Yeah. A name that they are alive, but they are dead on the inside (laughs) of the bottle. (laughs) Oh, dear. Gosh. But we kind of wanted to close out this episode just kind of giving you a couple of theoretical examples for a wine label. Michael, did you want to head that one up? Let Let me pull out my notes. 
So what I'll do is I'll just read a couple of labels and you can tell me what you can assume from those labels and where you're getting that information from. It's garbage. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't even started. All of them garbage. All of them are just garbage. Okay, so first up, Chateau de Carmesac, Bordeaux Superior. Okay. There uh, is Cru Classe on the label. Uh, Crew Class A is not on the label. So they were not labeled in the 1855 classification, so they're probably not super high quality, but they're probably making a decent wine since it's superior and it's going to be higher alcohol, therefore riper grapes, than standard Bordeaux. It's also 2018. Okay, so um, probably not meant for... I mean, Bordeaux wine can age for a while just kind of by the blend, but it's... I would not lay this down for what you would do at your higher quality levels. I would drink this pretty quickly. It's probably meant to be more of an early drinking style anyway. And you are very correct. This is a $16 wine. It is very good, but it's not something that you want to age. It is good quality, but it is, again, not something of a high enough quality to where you're going to be improving it by letting it have that age. Probably more Merlot dominant than Cabernet Sauvignon dominant, stuff like that. Yes. Next, we have Chateau Jean-Limbeco, 2016. Just that. That's it? That's all that's on the label? I'm going to guess this is either a VDP or an IGT wine. Um, So probably just a quaffable table wine, I'm going to be guessing. It is from Bordeaux. Okay. So it's a a Costa Castillon. Oh, okay. So yeah, that's but a that's regional. Yeah, but that's it's a very uh, Chateau Janine Becco. Uh, it's one of those times where you really do need to just know the producer themselves. Yeah, the Cote de Castillon. There's a couple of other like uh, Cote de Cadillac um, in Bordeaux. There's a, several coats that are delineated regions, and quality can vary on those. Yes. Yeah. And this one isn't crazy anything. Um, it's not anything in in particular because it is from Bordeaux. There are a a few grape varietals that it has to be, but it's nothing crazy. Ooh, this is a good one. Chateau Foer Lambert Bordeaux Superior, twenty eighteen, and this is a Grand Vin de Bordeaux. So probably higher quality in theory than the first Bordeaux Superior that you threw my way. I'm still assuming not a crew class A. Nope. So probably pretty solid wine. Because it's a Grand Vin and I don't quite know what the winemaker was going for, I would still probably put this in the drink younger category. But if it is the Grand Vin, the winemaker might have put some effort for ageability into it. I don't know. I would need to know the producer for that. Mm. Bourgogne Haute Côte du uh, Nuit. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is Domaine Chevillon uh, Chazeau. Uh, there is no vintage on it. Uh, Proprietary Inuit Saint Georges Cote d'Orfance. Okay. Well, so because it's a Oak Cote de Nuit, I'm assuming it has to be at least decent quality because that is a pretty specific region. Not having the vintage is kind of throwing me off, but. I'm assuming it's a red. Yes. So it's Pinot Noir. So this is probably going to be a pretty mushroomy, earthy Pinot Noir, I'm assuming, because of the region it's coming from and the lots of licorice sub-region it's coming from in particular. 
I would say this is probably a pretty quality, solid wine. Um, I'm assuming this is probably at least thirty dollars and forty. Okay, well, I was technically right. Still, actually, forty was my first uh, impulse, but I was like, man, maybe that's it's, too high. It's been a noir from yeah, from Burgundy, yeah, especially Eau Cote de Nuit. So yeah, no, uh, high quality wine. If you like that style of Pinot Noir, solid wine, probably very good with food, I would imagine, and a good buy if you want to shell out for it. Vaux Telegraphe, Chateauneuf du Pape, Rouge 2017. Okay, so um, this is kind of one of the top wines that you can get out of the Rhone Valley, and particularly the southern Rhone is where this appellation lies. Very complex probably smells and tastes like a cigar box pretty dense fruits but you're probably getting more secondary and tertiary characters i would imagine mineral okay and, yeah. and chalk yeah um that's gonna come a lot from the grapes that are used in that blend this is probably going to be very uh syrah grenache muvedra heavy as well as there's a crazy amount of other grapes that can be used in this wine as well yeah but high quality probably pretty pricey and but a solid buy you want to you want to take a guess at the price i'm gonna say 50 to 60 range up 80 up 100 90 90 okay you overshot it i overshot it but you are typically going to end up having to buy this for around 100 110 dollars okay so it's it's good shadow neef to pop is delicious you don't have to shell out a hundred dollars for every shot not to pop. No, you don't. There are a lot of amazing wines that come from France. That one that I that we started off with, the fifteen dollar one, that's actually a solid wine. Yeah. You just don't age it. You have to know how to enjoy what you're enjoying. And that really is the point of this whole episode, is just so that you can have a good expectation of what you're going to be getting. Hopefully by this time you have some confidence in what you are tasting and oh, how to taste it. The Burgundy and the Chateauneuf are probably Pretty good for aging for a couple of years, oh, at, at least. Absolutely. Yeah. Forgot to mention that. Just make sure that you're putting that in the right environment. Yes. Yeah. Cellar it correctly. Yeah. yeah. We, we covered that a while back. Listen so to that episode. Cellaring. Uh, hopefully you have some confidence in tasting. If you don't, then please check out our new our, and improved. Our new tasting episode. Our new and improved tasting episode, which hopefully you've had a chance to listen to. But Again, these are just the basic wine laws so that you can have a good expectation as to what you're paying for, what you're looking for when you look at French wine labels. Yep. Well, thanks for tuning in, everyone. Yeah. Thank you so much. Again, please, if you haven't already done so, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at LaidbackLush. If there are any topics or questions that you have for us, we would love to explore them. Slide into our DMs, and we will be glad to answer any of those questions. Yes. So, thank you very much once again. I have been Michael. I have been Gabe. Cheers. Cheers.